Hello there, Andrew here, running into another episode of God's Courtroom Home Bible Studies in Romans chapter 1 to chapter 5, 11. We're in session number four. We're looking at Romans 3, verse 21 to 31, uh, the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and uh, we are going to look at this together. I'm recording this on my phone. If the recording is not just quite so clear, I do apologize to you. I trust it will be a blessing to you anyway. So we're going to look at, at this chapter three, um, the latter half of it. We've looked so far at the whole subject mainly of condemnation from chapter 1, verse 17 through to chapter 3, verse 20. <clears throat> Mankind has no righteousness that he can bring to God, no right standing before God. There's nothing that he can bring to God that leaves him anything other than guilty before him. Um, now that's doesn't appear to be good news, but it is actually good news. It's good news because it lays a foundation for God's grace and God's kindness. If we don't understand where we are, if we don't understand our own lack of righteousness, we might go about trying to establish our own righteousness as the Jews were trying to do. It says that in chapter 10. But if we've established that we are guilty before God, that there is a worldwide human guilt, and all mankind has been shut up um, under sin, Paul then uh, comes to the crux of the gospel, the good news, as it were, of the gospel. Now, we really need to understand how great this problem is, and it can be put in the form of a, a question. How can a God who claims to be absolutely righteous take people who are clearly unrighteous and guilty, clear them of their guilt while remaining absolutely righteous. Now, that, that seems like a conundrum. Um, God is not the kind of God who can sweep things under the rug and forget about them uh, as though they didn't happen. If, if a, a judge did that, you would say he wasn't a good judge. And you'd be right to say that because it's someone who is unrighteous and, and guilty uh, should not be allowed to to get off scot-free without payment being made for the crime committed. Um, the Christian view of God shows that he doesn't act against his righteous character. That, that's the biblical view of God. He will by no means, it tells us in Exodus 34, clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. So sin can't be swept, as I said, under the carpet. Pardons in that sense cannot be issued unless payment is made. And so this is the problem. God really has only one way of dealing with sin, and it's by judging, by uh, finding um, that sin uh, and dealing with it in that sense. So how can God do this? How can God find a way whereby unrighteous man is brought into his presence, cleared and blessed and fit for the glory of God? So this section is worthy of, of great study um, and memorization. Uh, we'll look at these 11 verses, but we'll focus mainly in the first six. Um, we could look at this as the Christian's Magda Carta, um, this, a guarantee of, of rights and privileges that we find, a legal guarantee in these verses. So, uh, as you'll notice at the end of, of, I was about to say chapter one, but page one of the handout, which you'll find 
um, connected to the podcast. Um, if you can't get it, email me at williamson one at yahoo.co.uk. Um, we have at the end of Romans, uh, of page one, sorry, uh, Romans 3, 21 to 5, 11, uh, God's righteous answer to man's need. So what we're going to see over the next few chapters is really that the God who um, has condemned us is the God who finds answer for our problem. In the little section we're looking at, it divides mainly into two, we have a righteous God who can declare guilty people righteous. You say, how is that possible? Well, we'll think about that. And then from verse 27 to 31, he answers further Jewish questions. So a righteous God can declare guilty people righteous. What we're going to do is read this first section together. Um, we'll, we'll read the whole section and then we'll break it down in a little bit more detail. A righteous God can declare guilty people righteous. Let's read that. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so God's righteous answer to man's need begins here. But now... Let's look first of all at the righteousness of God unveiled. But now, a righteousness of God has been manifested. You see, what we have first of all, and it's helpful to understand this, when it's speaking about the righteousness of God in the early part of this paragraph, it's not really speaking about God's righteous character, his nature, that he is a righteous and upright God. He's a God who's pure um, and so on. It's not speaking about his own personal uprightness, uh, not at all. It's speaking about the answer that man needs. You see, man does not have a righteousness. We've been discovering that right from uh, chapter 1 and verse 17, 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's, it's all been about man's unrighteousness, that man is guilty, that man is sinful, that man does not have a right standing before God. He is not righteous before God. So when it, we come to verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from uh, the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When that statement is made, what we're seeing is a contrast between the unrighteousness that comes from man and a righteousness that comes from God. 
not so much God's righteous character, his personal righteousness, but the gift of righteousness that he wants to give to everyone who believes. And so that's helpful to understand because otherwise we'll not understand this paragraph correctly. The first time we read about this righteousness then, it's not so much the righteousness of God, but a righteousness of God. That maybe helps. There's no article here. It can be it can be rendered as an indefinite article. But now, a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness or a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, that's the headline bit. That's the, that's the first little bit. The righteousness of God has been unveiled. That's verse 21 to 22a. So this righteousness in this part is not so much God's nature, his character. That'll come in the rest of the paragraph. We'll come down to that in verse number uh, 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, that's a slightly different construction there. And it's emphasizing God's own personal righteous character. His righteousness has been upheld, but he gives a gift of righteousness, the right standing that we can have before God in Christ. So I hope that's clear. It'll become really obvious as we go down, I think. But then we might ask the question, as I did in the, uh, the handout, how can it be apart from law and testified to by the law? It says here that there's this righteousness of God. It's been manifested, it's been unveiled, as it were, apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does that mean even, that it's apart from law? Well, it's a, it's a apart from law righteousness. It's not a, a righteousness that comes through us trying to keep any kind of law. It's not, you know, it's a... There's no law works involved in getting hold of this righteousness. We've already just proved that law works don't work when it comes to being righteous. So, so God has brought into the understanding of mankind a righteousness that's available that's apart from law altogether. It's not through keeping uh, some sort of high standard that you get this. It's not through from hitting some law that... And, and, you know, scoring 100% on it, that you're going to receive this righteousness. It's, an, it's apart from law righteousness. It's from God. It's not from man at all. That's wonderful. And then it says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is ESV. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this is not something that's apart from law in the sense that it's against the Old Testament or it's uh, against the... The truth of the Bible, not at all. In fact, it's witnessed to by the law and the prophets. So in other words, the law and the prophets, a more technical term for the Old Testament, um, has the truth of the gospel at its heart. We're going to see that in the next chapter too, obviously. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was put to his account for righteousness. That's the principle of justification. Uh, the just shall live by faith. We learn that from the, not from the law, but from the prophets in, in the, the book of Habakkuk. And so throughout the Old Testament, this idea of, of God providing a righteousness is seen again 
And again, in fact, uh, we, we looked a little bit at Zechariah 3 uh, in our home Bible study. We thought about how God actually gave a picture to Zechariah, a vision to Zechariah of the, the Israel high, Israel's high priest, Joshua at the time, and he was clothed in filthy rags, filthy garments, and Satan was accusing him and, and was the adversary against him. And the Lord came and, and decreed that those garments would be taken off him and, and cl- clean garments put on him. You remember the high priest when he went into the holy presence of God. He went in, not in his garments of glory and beauty. He went in in those beautiful linen, white linen garments that speak of righteousness uh, in the Old Testament. We can't dig into that at the moment. But those white linen garments uh, were a robe of righteousness, as it were, that allowed him to go into the immediate presence of God. You see, this is the thing. What we need is a gift of righteousness that gives us a right standing in God's presence. And that's what's now being offered in the gospel. But now, a righteousness of God, without law-keeping, is available. It's been unveiled. It's been manifested. Uh, The word manifested here is actually in the perfect tense, which means it's not just that it happened back when the Lord came or something like that, but it has been, it has a permanent effect now for us. It's not that it was manifested, but it has been manifested. It's still with us, the effect of the manifestation of this wonderful gospel truth that God gives to people a righteousness, a right standing before himself. He clothes people in a robe of righteousness, as it were. The righteousness of God, he tells us what it is, he underlines it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So, this message goes out to all who believe. And in fact, um, the, the Texas Receptus here in the, uh, the majority text has unto all and upon all them that believe. I like that. Um, It could well be an expanded thought. Not only is it directed towards all, but it's upon those who believe. All those who believe, they, they receive this robe of righteousness. And that makes sense of the next little clause in the next part of the, the, the paragraph. Because we don't only have the righteousness of God unveiled, but we have the righteousness of God unpacked. Let's see how we go about it. Verse uh, 22, the second half. For there is no distinction. Why does this righteousness need to be directed towards all? Why is it available to all who believe? For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile here. It's all been broken down in the sense that all have sinned, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever their background. He's already proved this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and so we have this idea of, of there being no distinction now. Everything's a level playing field. All are under sin. And therefore this message when it comes, it comes without distinction to everyone. They all need this righteousness. They all have to come in on the same basis and take it with a, from an empty hand. As it were. It says here that um, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it says, which is, of course, the idea of, of, of glorifying God or bringing glory to God, man's responsibility, as it were, I take it, and are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption is in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot that needs unpacked here. We've thought of condemnation, and now we've this thought of grace. Grace is, in that sense, God's unmerited favour. We don't deserve it. We are undeserving. More than that, we are, in that sense, hell-deserving. We deserve the very opposite. And yet God's grace comes to us when we are at our very lowest and our very worst, and it comes... As a gift. And what is it? It's to be justified. Justified. Now what does justify mean? Well, um, I've used the illustration of it being like on a page when everything's lined up. On the right hand side you justify a page. Everything's lined up at the top. And there's a sense in which that's what it's like. God has a righteous standard and a righteous throne. And we're being lined up. In line with that righteous throne. We are being justified. We're being declared righteous. Not so much made righteous in the sense that, you know, my, our character is changed. That's not the thought here. It's a legal standing that we're given as righteous, as not guilty, as cleared of every charge of guilt in the sense that legally... It's just as though we have not committed any crime against God. So we've been declared righteous. We've been justified. So through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we've had condemnation. We've had the thought of justification, declared righteous, and that's the... The same word that we use, our word for righteous, is here and justified. Uh, justice, righteousness, yeah. Um, through the redemption as in Christ Jesus brings us to the thought of redemption. Now, redemption is the thought here of, of deliverance through the payment of a ransom. Now, the ransom was paid by Christ on the cross. He paid into the bank of eternal justice all that was necessary to release us from our slavery to sin and to Satan and to to bring us near to God. And in doing so, we were justified. But that's not the whole of the story either. They're kind of linked thoughts, but they're not uh, exactly the same. Then it says, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we have condemnation, justification, redemption, all big thoughts and big truths. But then we also have this thought of propitiation. What does that mean? Well, this word propitiation actually would better be rendered propitiatory. It was a thing. The propitiatory, the only other reference to this word, direct word I mean, was it is in Hebrews chapter 9. We're speaking about the tabernacle. Uh, if you go to the back of the, the handout, you'll see um, a picture of the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle. And there was a golden casket, and inside that box was placed the 
Ten Commandments, unbroken, the unbroken tables of the law. And on top of that, a lid was placed, and that lid was called the mercy seat, or the propitiatory, to use this word, the Greek word. And on top of that box lid, there were two um, cherubim, the guardians of God's righteousness. They were looking down with their arms outstretched, looking down upon the lid. And on that lid, once a year, was sprinkled the blood of atonement, the blood from the sacrifice of the goat, from the day of atonement, and seven times in front of it. And God said, now listen, the place to meet with me is from over the mercy seat from between the two cherubim. Just where God's righteousness looked down, as it were, upon the blood that was shed, there was a meeting place, a a meeting place between God and man. Somewhere where God was satisfied to meet with man. Now that's the thought here, the propitiatory, a divine meeting place because of the satisfaction that God has in the death of Christ, in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross, the blood that he shed. So let's think of that and place it back into this verse. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the, the payment that Christ made, whom God set forth as a mercy seat. By his blood to be received by faith. So the way we approach that mercy seat, as it were, is by faith. Our approach is by faith. The way God comes to that mercy seat is his acceptance of the blood. He looks upon the blood. He sees the sacrifices being made. And therefore this opportunity is open for man to draw near to God on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, the righteous basis of one who has paid the debt in full, of one who has died for our sins, for, of one who has satisfied the throne of the righteous throne of God with regard to sin. So that is the propitiatory. He's been brought near. We've been brought near to God through that. Now, more could be said in that, but we'll maybe leave it there. Well, maybe one other thing. Now notice this. You'll see that the, the mercy seat in the Old Testament was placed behind curtains. You'll see that in another appendix at the back. The mercy seat was in the holiest of all, the holy of holies, the most holy place. It was behind everything else, behind all these curtains, out of the way, obscure people knew there was this meeting place between God and man but they didn't know much about it as it were now the very opposite is the case now that's why it says but now and then it says um, in verse number uh, 25 uh, whom God has set forth or put forward as a mercy seat 
So the mercy seat isn't now behind curtains, not at all. You see, when we go to Calvary and we see the death of Christ, this was a public event. Uh, There was nothing hidden about it in that sense. Well, we know that darkness came, but, but there was nothing hidden in the sense that this event took place and the implications of the event were made known. And, and so God is trying to tell us something through this or is telling us something through this and we'll see that in the next bit of this paragraph. So we've looked at the righteousness of God unveiled, the righteousness of God unpacked, but then we have God's righteous character unaffected. Look at what it says. The reason why the mercy seat, that is Christ, was set forth in a public place. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, that's not now the righteousness that he's offering. That's, that's not the, a right standing before God. The package, as it were, that's the gift that he offers to those who by faith come to Christ. No, here it is, God's righteous character, his, his own personal uprightness, we might say. This was to show God's righteousness. Because of his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. And it's to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let's think of this for a minute. If you lived away back in ancient times and you were scratching your head about these issues, you would perhaps say to yourself, well, God says he forgives people, but I don't see how. God says he justified Abraham, but but I don't see how he put to his account righteousness. How, How could a righteous God clear someone of their guilt how could how could a righteous god make a guilty person not guilty i i I don't understand in fact it tells us in exodus 34 as we thought that god will by no means clear the guilty in other words the guilty pay for their crimes but how can god change you from being guilty to not guilty how can he do that um, the, the crimes must be paid for, of course. But they wouldn't have known how that was the case. Now, we look at it from our side of the cross and we look back and see someone else has paid the debt. Someone else has borne the punishment. Someone else has endured the wrath of God, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and satisfied the throne of God with regard to sin. That's, that's what he did at the cross. But how... Was a person in the Old Testament to view this? Well, there was this kind of query, as it were, over God's character. He did forgive, but no one knew how. But now, in setting forth Christ clearly in the cross and what had happened at the cross, God's righteous character is vindicated. He had been righteous all along, he knew that Calvary was going to take place. And in that sense, as someone else has said, he saved people on credit. He justified people on credit. So that's what happened in the past. People, even though there was no evidence as to how it would be be so, just like that mercy seat being behind the curtains and not much being known about it, 
God was saving people because he knew about Calvary. And God now then brings Christ into public view in his death on the cross and people will be able to see God have been righteous the whole way along. So he's righteous in the past. But not only is he righteous in the past, he's righteous now in the present. So the last clause says this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now this is wonderful. He's going to tie together this idea of a righteous standing offered in the gospel with the righteous character of God. He is just and the justifier. He is righteous and he declares righteous uh, those who have faith in Jesus. God's own attribute of righteousness is shown to be vindicated in the propitiation of Christ. And so God has been seen to be righteous all the way along. And whether it be his past actions or his present actions in, in justifying the person who believes in the Lord Jesus, God's um, found the answer that shows him to be just and he can still justify the, the person who believes in Jesus. So a righteous God can declare guilty people righteous. Now that's the, the key paragraph as it were. There's a couple of questions come up at the end of it. We'll just mention these. So he, he's really answering, uh, Paul is now answering further Jewish questions from verse 27 to 31. What shall become of our boasting? Sorry, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one who is justified by faith up that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then overthrow the, the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So what has become of our boasting? Well, you'll remember the Jews, they were interested in boasting, boasting about their, their own righteousness, polishing up uh, that, that monument to their own righteousness. They, they were the ones who boasted in God as their exclusive possession. They're the one who thought, we will be right with God. God will never punish us because we are part of the circumcised family. We, we are the ones that have this right. And of course, the answer is, Boasting is excluded in the gospel. It's excluded because it all comes from grace. It's all from God. But there's another way in which it's excluded. It's excluded because of the principle it's used. The principle of faith. You see, if for instance, and, and the illustration I gave wasn't perfect, but we'll, we'll try it again. Imagine you were sinking in the sea a wee bit out of harbour. You were in trouble and you were down to your last gasp and you knew there was no chance that you would ever be able to make it to the shore yourself. And there you were and your, your, your body was slipping under the waves and, and, and out comes the lifeboat and with your last gasp, you just gasp out to the person in the lifeboat, save me. 
and you, you, you throw all your, your hope and your faith, as it were, into this one last opportunity you have. And, and the person comes, grabs your arm, lifts you into the boat and saves you. And you come back to harbour and you jump out of the boat and you go, aren't I wonderful? Aren't I such a great person? I mean, I knew just when to call. No, you wouldn't do that, would you? There's no boasting in the fact that you've just trusted in someone else. No, there's, there's, there's no glorying you can do in that. The principle of faith doesn't allow for glorying in self. Because you're saying, listen, there's nothing in me that's good or righteous. I need the righteousness from God. I'm trusting the Lord to give me that. So there's no room for boasting. If I ever, it was a principle of law that was operating, where you had to just work hard and you got what you earned through working hard, well, the principle of boasting could be applied, couldn't it? I mean, imagine you'd been out struggling in the water again and uh, you'd, you'd learned a new backstroke or something like that and, and you, 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 you managed to flip yourself over onto your back and you... You drag yourself in uh, up the shore and, and, and you're, you, 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 in that sense, save yourself. Well, you could run up and down the town and say, look, look how wonderful I am now. Look how good I am at my backstroke. You see, there's a sense in which when it's the principle of law, there's a room for boasting. But God has excluded boasting. He's laughed it out of court in that sense. He said, no, nobody can boast. This must be a free gift. And so that's the first point he makes. The, the Jews' idea of boasting in, in their own goodness and boasting in all that they had and boasting in their right standing before God, it's excluded. That's not the way anybody comes into blessing. Secondly, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? So this is not so much about someone boasting in themselves. This is... This is to do with God's character. You see, they thought God was their exclusive possession, that he was only interested in the Jews. After all, you know, all these Gentile nations, the issues with these Gentile nations was they were, um, they had all these idols and the Jews have the living God. And and so therefore God must be only interested in us Jews. (laughs) Well, they were going to find out that wasn't the case. They should have known it from the book of Jonah, but they were going to find out that wasn't the case. So they, they had this view of God, as it were, as the property of the Jews. And God said, no, no, listen, there's one God. They should have known that from their Shema, from their, their, their thing they ritualistically say every morning. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The unity of God, the, the oneness of, of God. This God has an interest in all of his, his creation. And he has opened this gospel because he is the one god he's not only the god of the jews he's also the god of the gentiles now there's a way in which the jews would have admitted this they would have admitted that he was the only god and because of that they should have understood that that only god had an interest in the gentiles and this gospel was in line with the fact he's not just the god of the jews He's the God of the Gentiles also. That's why he'll justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Now, 
if you want a wee, there's a slight tweak in the two things that are said there, one of the Jew and the other. We'll not mention it now. If you're interested, I can chat to you about it. Uh, but what's the, the overriding thought is that the principle of faith is operative. And justification is by faith in Christ. Now, that's something he's going to take up in the next chapter in more detail. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's chapter 4 in a nutshell, just there. He's going to develop that next. Finally, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, the challenge then the Jew has is, well, what's the purpose of law at all? If, as a result of what you're saying, the law, the Mosaic law, uh, and so on, is, is in a sense no use as to salvation. It has no salvific value. It doesn't have any way in which it brings someone closer to God. The gospel comes along and says, well, we do that. It does not make the law of no effect at all. Does it overthrow the law? And Paul will say, no, no, that's not the case. It puts the law in its proper place. The law is used to bring the knowledge of sin. The gospel is used to deal with that problem of sin. Uh, and, and so as he comes to the end of the chapter, he's dealing with these questions that the Jewish people have. Now, just in conclusion, we'll, we'll try and sum up a few things. I think it's important we understand these things. Once we understand that it only doesn't only depend on God's love that we are going to be in heaven, but it depends on his justice. He is the one who has orchestrated and designed something that is in line with his eternal justice. So he is backing this. Uh, the wee old lady who was dying in Wales and the minister came in and said, Sister, are you depending on the love of God? Say, not a bit of it. I'm depending on the justice of God. Um, she got it right. I mean, we can depend on the love of God, but it's wonderful to know that God's essential justice is behind what he is doing with us. And so I, I put that lovely hymn from thence this fear and unbelief. If God my father put to grief his spotless son for me, can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for the debt of sin, which Lord was charged to thee? You can look at that beautiful uh, hymn at the end of the notes uh, by Augustus Toplady. But finally, so God established a legal basis for our justification. And so our security is not just in God's love, it's in God's righteousness. And because our salvation isn't to do with us polishing up our own righteousness, but through a righteousness given by God, we can rest and rejoice in God and his grace. Thirdly, we've nothing to boast in of ourselves. It was our predicament that drew out God's grace and Christ's deliverance. Trust that's a blessing to you. And next week, hopefully, we'll be back in the proper uh, podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.